Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rula.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rula and this is Rula Conversations. We've been a bit quiet on Ruler Conversations in the last few weeks. We got a bit busy on Ruler Live, the best ever edition of our annual show, which just gets bigger and better every year. And we've also just gone to press on the last magazine of 2023, which is an absolute cracker. But we're back now, and we're going to put together a special series of podcasts through to the end of the year, which are going to include some of the interviews and stage talks we did at Ruler Live. We had so many amazing guests, we felt it would be interesting for our podcast listeners to enjoy some of the atmosphere of the show, or if they're actually there to relive some of the best moments or even to catch up on anything they missed. We're going to kick off the series with the stage talk I did with Geraint Thomas on the final day of the show. Thomas is, as I point out in my introduction, one of the greatest cyclists Great Britain has ever produced. Of course, he's a Tour de France winner, so he's international cycling royalty. But what I've always found interesting about him is his versatility. He has won Olympic gold medals on the track, week-long stage races and even classics with an E3 place win in 2015. He's also famously laid back and personable, and my perception is that fame has not at all left a mark on him. He's got two very successful podcasts up and running, What's Occurring, which he hosts with Ineos teammate Luke Rowe, and the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club with journalist Tom Fordyce. And he's just got a great new book out, Great Rides According to G, about his favourite rides and a lot of backstory to go with each one. It's a great Christmas present for the cyclist in your life along with, of course, a Ruler subscription. So, without further ado, here's our stage talk from Ruler Live 2023, according to G. Hello, Ruler Live 2023. Welcome to day three of the show. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Ruler magazine, a hollow husk of a man after three solid days of Ruler Live. I hope you've all had as good a time as I have. So, joining me on stage today is a Tour de France winner, one of the greatest cyclists Great Britain has ever produced, Garen Thomas. Thank you. How's your Rouleau life going so far? Oh, it's been busy, to be honest. Um, oh, the last two weeks hasn't helped. 
to be fair. So when my alarm was going off at 6.30, I was like, why am I, Why is my alarm going off? And I was like, oh, yeah, great. I'm going to the ruler. And so what, then, what have you done so far today? I went, mate, I don't even know. <laughs> I, uh, I've been on here with Nico. We had to do a, I didn't really realise it was a live podcast. I've got a podcast, by the way. So it's on my list of stuff to cover. So. Cool. And then, what did we do there? I've been to Pinarello Cask, back here, had a pizza in the middle of it. But it's been good, yeah. It's nice to come and see how passionate people are as well. Because you yeah. never get to do that, really, you know, at a race. You kind of, well, you know everyone enjoys racing and stuff. But, yeah, it's, it's good to see the love for cycling, really, yeah. And have you seen the, the portrait that's been made of you by the puncher street artists out of the entrance? Yeah, fair play. All out a little tiny... 22,000 little dots. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's impressive. I bumped into Geraint in the green room earlier on just to say hello. And over beer and pizza, you said you'd had a massive off-season. Mm. So just, just clarify for the benefit of those of us who oh. may not know what you mean. How massive has your off-season been? Well, it's been massive in every way, really. I've had five weeks off the bike since the Volta. I sort of ridden a little bit in between there. But yeah, five weeks totally off. I did an event in Ibiza, which was quite heavy, which it's pretty obvious when you think about it, isn't it? when you think about Ibiza. But um, I didn't expect it. I thought I'd just ride and, you know, a few meals and whatever. But that was quite heavy. And then come back to Cardiff. And I haven't been back to Cardiff since Christmas, maybe less than two weeks. So, you know, you meet everyone. And as soon as you meet a mate, it's like, oh, we'll go out for dinner and a couple of bottles of wine later. It's quite a big night. So um, it's been like that, really. And then we was in Bluestone. It's kind of similar to Centre Parks. It's in West Wales. I was there with the kids. So that was even more tiring. <laughs> So yeah, I'm just looking forward to getting back on the straight and narrow, really. You seem to have established a rhythm that works for you, where whatever you are doing, you do it properly. Yeah, because kind of like these days is a lot of data we were speaking about earlier. Like there's so many, everything's measured. Like when you're on the bike, it's obviously measured, power cranks and whatever, heart rates. And then, you know, you've got all these sleeping apps now and then nutrition and all this and that. So I can do it and commit to it, but I still don't wear the sleeping ring or anything. Like, it's pretty obvious if you have a bad night's sleep, isn't it? You've got a child, Garen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I have like a big build up to a big goal, and then I sort of had a little blowout. You continue the season, you do your job, whatever, but then the end of the season is my time to really let go, really. And I don't read anything in the news or don't follow cycling in any way. I speak to my mates, obviously, but totally switch off and then get real, get the hunger back then, which I definitely have now. I'm just like, I really need to just ride my bike now and just have a bit of structure yeah and, and apart from the parties and stuff obviously you have a family and these days the cycling season you're away so much it's actually quite important to get the family time as well isn't it most definitely yeah like from march until the end of the giro i think i was home for about 11 days and yeah march to the end of may that is so it's a long old time away you know like because these days as well like altitude camps are even more important you know teams are doing like longer like three weeks stints now and it's just getting more and more full on and I'm kind of happy I'm at the age I am to be honest I don't want it to sound bad now but I'm glad I'm not 20 but you know with all, all these years in front of me but I don't know it, it's, it's a lot more I, I don't think you'll get as long a careers anymore for sure there'll be the odd exception but in general I think because um, the racing's so intense like, I think from January to October now you know Pogaccia can but you know for the majority of the guys it's hard to maintain a high level for that period with the, the way the racing is. But yeah, I've always kind of done that. Just big highs and very deep lows. But um, <laughs> that's, that, that works for me. Yeah, we'll get on to the deep lows of 2023 shortly. You've been a pro for 17 
seasons mm. now, and you've just signed for another two with, uh, with, with Ineos for another two years, which will take your total up to 19 seasons. And you know, has that perspective on your whole career from, from this point of view, well, you know, how is that? It's mad. I, I don't feel that old. And 37 is old for a cyclist now. I just remember when I think back to when I turned pro and I don't know who the oldest in the team would have been, but to think like if they were 36, 37, you'd just be a bit like, my granddad's like, you know? <laughs> and now that's me. I'm kind of like, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. But I think because I'm with the younger guys all the time as well, it definitely keeps you young. Because like Max's school, for instance, now he's just at his preschool, chatting with some of the dads at some random park. This party was insane, by the way, in Monaco. Mate, it's sick. But anyway, that's a different story. I was chatting to some of the dads and they, you know, they're all in sort of finance and, you know, selling this and that and talking about this. And then one of them looked at me, I was kind of like, mate, I just ride a bike and when it hurts, I just try harder. Like, so then I was like, yeah, it, maybe cycling has held me back a little with the whole uh, developmental yeah. thing. <laughs> How is it bringing up a family in Monaco? It's great to be fair. Like you've got your stereotypical Monaco life, which that, there definitely is that side, but we're in a, quieter more residential part you know max like i said started preschool he absolutely loves it he did go to a french one last year and he hated it just cried every day and that's like oh it's nothing worse is there but now he loves this school runs in there um doesn't even look back your job is done exactly yeah so uh so that's great my wife loves it there she's always been a massive homing pigeon you know loves being in cardiff and family friends but now after like 11 years away she's like don't really want to move back now. Really? I think, yeah, with the weather and, and just... But we will. We definitely will. But it's, it's not the real world either. It's a bit like Disneyland, you know. But it is super clean, super safe. That's the main thing, the safety. You know, my wife can go out for some drinks and walk back midnight, one in the morning, feel fine, you know. Then outdoors for Max, it's great. You know, you don't have to plan anything around the weather. You just know it's going to be a nice day. So, yeah. And they're and, happy. That's why I extended as well. Yeah. And is Max more understanding of what you actually do for a living now? A little. I think at the minute it's kind of having a bit of a negative effect on him because he wants to race everywhere. <laughs> so even if we're walking on a bike, you know, hopping, whatever, you've got to race. I've just started beating him though a few times. <laughs> and it causes a few meltdowns. Like com- but competitive dad style. Or- yeah. Well, I'm just a bit like, he's got to learn at some point, haven't he? Like, <laughs> so... That's interesting. But yeah, it's decent. Yeah. So let's talk about 2023. Interesting season for you. So what was your mindset going into the year? What were your aims and targets? And how did it unfold from the start of the year? So the main goal was the Giro. And in the back of my mind, it was like, yeah, possibly do the Volta after. Because I'd never done Giro Volta in the same year. But the main goal was the Giro. And then end of December, I had like an infection, a UTI infection, random. Couldn't find out why. Kept coming back. Cut a long story short, like till end of... Feb, start of March, kind of found out why, sorted it out. But for that whole period of a good, yeah, two and a half months, it was really stop-start, no consistency. And it was the first time I'd had, like, you know, when you're injured, you're injured and it's kind of, you know what you've got to do. You hit the physio and you get better and whatever. Whereas this was, like, a bit unknown. We didn't really know why it was coming back and whatever. And anyway, got that sorted. And then it was maybe, oh, eight weeks, maybe seven weeks till the, the Giro. So... It was full gas, trying to stay positive, full gas to zero, and that went the way it did. That seems quite late to, mm. you know, to get onto peak form for, for your target. It was. It was by far the, the most, I, I don't know about underprepared, but I was, it was the most sort of like 
to the limit where I was like, whoa, I, I don't actually know how good I could be here, like on the start line. And it turns out that very first time trial, I lost 16 seconds to Roglic. And I ended up losing by 15 in the end. I'm not saying it's all down to that TT, but it's kind of like, well, if I just add that couple of weeks extra, who knows? But that's the way it goes, isn't it? And that's, you know, I did everything I could at the time with, with what was happening. So, um, and that's kind of what took the edge off the disappointment of coming second as well. Just coming from where I had, really. Yeah. Having been third in the Tour de France the year before, and you've, you've targeted, you have targeted the Giro before and had a bit of bad luck along the way. So were you confident you were going to be able to put in a good performance? I was, but I don't know if it was a bit, you know, as athletes as well, you get quite um, delusional sometimes. You know, you kind of like talk yourself, no matter how it's going, you're kind of like always, no, it'll be okay in the end. And you kind of, just that attitude of, I don't know, like being ultra positive, I guess, and just sort of confidence in what you're doing, knowing that, no, no, I've done X, Y, and Z, I can still be good. So that was kind of my attitude. So after everything that happened, I knew there was still a chance, but I knew I was up against it. And then obviously the lineup was strong, you know, with Remco and Roglic and everybody else, obviously. Teo was going really well as well, teammate. So I knew it was going to be super hard. And it was kind of like, well, after what I've had, it's going to be harder, but that is what it is. You know, you can't affect that now. So crack on and see what happens. And how was the feeling in the team? Because Teo, you know, came off the back of winning the Tour of the Alps before the Giro. And I guess there was a joint leadership strategy going. Was the feeling in the team good? Was everything kind of clear? Yeah, it was great. And to be fair to Teo, he was always behind me. If I needed him, he would have stepped up and helped, even though, like I say, it was a rocky road to that point. But I think the good thing, though, is everyone could see the progression as well. So from, well, down under when I just basically had to get around it. You know, if that had been in Europe, there's no way the team would have put me in, but because I was down there, I did it. Then after that, it was Catalonia, so it was quite a big gap. And from Catalonia to the Alps, it, I'd made quite a big step forward. And I think the whole team could see that. You know, we'd been on camp together. They could see me getting better through the camp. So I think that was the main thing. Like, everyone else sort of gained confidence from that as well. And, and they all became... As delusional as me, probably, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that first time trial stage, quite astonishing, really. I mean, that many, many of the GC favourites were quite grouped together, apart from Evanpol, who uh, put in a really good day yeah. that day. What were your thoughts after that day? Um, it wasn't a major surprise, to be honest, because we kind of knew he's got that in him, like one massive big day, one big hit. But to put it together over three weeks was always like, oh, you, you don't really know. But yeah, the way you went there, like I think he put... 20 odd seconds into people maybe like I think for club 10 it was close to 16 minutes like it was unreal and there was a couple of corners as well so proper similar to a dual carriageway circuit you know what I mean it was it was unbelievable how quick he went but yeah everyone was a bit like whoa but at the same time you're like three weeks is a long way away so we'll see how it goes and yeah as it turns out he ends up getting COVID and, and, and whatever anyway yeah and the, the race progressed actually pretty well for you didn't it I mean you stayed out of trouble you were there for the for the main moments it's quite a quiet first week on the gc maybe and then there was that stage very punchy stage to fossombrone i think it was where you roglic and teo actually got away mm. and that was the first time people got the idea hang on maybe evanopol's not the guy maybe it's these three guys yeah i think the weather had a big part to play in that first bit as well there was one stage i don't know the name of it now it was like an uphill finish it's supposed to be the first battle and that was a strong headwind and it's kind of like when it's such a strong headwind like that and it's a 10, 15k climb, like, where, where are you going to go? So it kind of neutralised the race. But then this climb, I think it's Cappuccino climb it was called. I was actually surprised, to be honest, because that's 
probably my least favorite type of climb like a sort of hit like you know it was only five minutes or something it was quite short but yeah to get over the top and Teo had just I'm sure he was attacking me but he had just got me over the top which is fine and uh was that deliberate, was, deliberate on your part to just yeah give him a bit of hope <laughs> but then uh no we're all good by the way I'm just joking but Roglic was in front Teo just got across him I was a big gap and uh oh I think that's the deepest I've gone all year like just to close that last little bit but the difference when you do close compared to if you didn't was just massive and that yeah. yeah that was the big thing and me and Teo just sat on him on the descent you couldn't really give a turn anyway and then a little bit chop off and so yeah that was a big boost of confidence that's when I was like oh actually yeah this is game on now and how did the rest of the race progress for you good you know the long TT almost won that that was less than a second that was frustrating um, especially because like visor got steamed up after throw that radio was bit in and out and there always seems to be something happening even in a time trial and then then took the jersey then because Remco went home which was nice. Well, not nicely went home, but nice to take the jersey. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, it was nice for him to get a rest. I mean, he was, he was sick. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then that was great, leading the race, you know, especially after... Because 21 was probably the lowest, probably the worst, well, season I've had, really. Like, build-up to the tour was the best season I had. Then the tour went to pot on stage three, popped my shoulder out, and then, I don't know, a bit of mental, a bit of everything. It just didn't go well. And then went to the Olympics, crashed out of that. I know the contract negotiations weren't great. So that was a really rough time. So then this year then to take the jersey and then have that week, it was almost like going back five years to when I won the tour. And all the boys, you know, real good atmosphere. Everyone was riding really well, 100% behind me and amazing. And then we did that bloody... TT up some stupid yeah. hill. Like, yeah, sorry about that. I mean, we'll, we'll punch well, that bruise. Mountain, not hill. We'll punch that bruise in a minute. But um, first of all, Teo crashed out, and that yeah. that doesn't suit the team. I mean, I, I know that you know, he he was possibly in the best form he's ever been in, and yeah, an unlucky sure, yeah. crash on a pretty innocuous descent. What was the atmosphere in the team after that? Yeah, everyone was disappointed, but after a day, you know, once you start the next day, it's almost like you don't forget about it. But well, you. you, you you do as well in a way, like in a harsh way, but you have to be focused on what you're doing and it just kind of just moves on. But it was a massive blow to lose him because, yeah, as I say, if he had still been in the race, it would have been totally different because we would have had, you know, two cards to play. We could have definitely done something different, which we were both up for, you know, racing a bit like that. But yeah, unfortunately, um, it was a UAE guy. He crashed in front of me. I just basically landed on him and then Teo was behind me and Pavel behind him and they both crashed. They were hurt quite badly. I had nothing on me, um, a little scuff on my shorts, but so it was mad the difference because he'd obviously had a big, he broke something, I don't know what now, he had to have surgery and he's just back on the bike now. So really bad injury. So yeah, I was lucky he had really bad luck and um, yeah, the team were down for a bit, but as I say, sort of rallied and there was also a bit of COVID in the peloton as well. Everyone was stressing about that. My family couldn't come out, they were going to come to the rest day and so then they're a bit like, well, at least I get to rest now anyway. So <laughs> it was a lot going on. Like we lost Pipo early on because of COVID as well. And then we lost Pavel a few days after that because he, he had a few crashes along the way. So it was um, eventful, but morale and everything still was really positive. The mountains in the final week were huge, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And, and luckily, so it's Puccio and Swifty who aren't really necessarily, well, they weren't the strongest climbers in the team, but they upped their game massively. So that meant, the other two got because there's only five of us left, Topluski and Timon, and they were they were flying as well. 
so the four of them did the job of eight, you know, and it was, it was insane. And it is a lot of it is all the mentality as well. And really wanting to, you know, dig in for you, for your mates really. And, um, it definitely brought us together and yeah, bonded us even more, I'd say. And the rivals that emerged at the end, it was clearly Roglic, you and Almeida, you mm. know, you were a level above everyone else. And really you, you until, until stage 20, it seemed that you had the upper hand on those other two riders. Yeah, I felt like I definitely had it on Almeida. It was the one day when Roglic crashed. Looking back now, I was like, ah, maybe I should have just... So I got, I wanted to race for that stage. So I didn't, once I caught Almeida, I went quite hard to try and get rid of him. And he managed to stay there. Maybe if I just kept going a bit, you know, you think all these things now. But if I had tried to keep going and, and just think about getting to the top as quick as I could, might have popped him. And then I would have had the stage anyway. But instead, I sort of backed off a bit, used him. We rode together a little. But it was always a bit like cat and mouse a bit. So we didn't gain as much time on Roglic as what we could have. Then he beat me in the sprint. Yeah, and then, you know, fast forward like a week or whatever, and you lose by 15 seconds. You're like, oh, maybe if I... But that's bike racing, in it? And at the time, you do what you kind of think you should do. Is he good to talk about the time trial? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's your perspective on that, on that time trial now? What's your thoughts going into the how's your mindset did you feel okay i felt good like i knew roglic was strong though because there's a few times when he attacked the day before and the day before that was it was hard for sure but you know to win a grand tour is not easy is it so you know you expect it to be hard so i was in a good frame of mind i was feeling good no difference the other days really but looking back we were a bit too much focused on like the weight as well like how because normally in you know a five-hour stage doesn't matter how heavy you are at the start because that's all just glycogen and store you know it's stuff is water retention all this jazz so when you get to the end you, you're about a kilo and a half two kilos lighter anyway even by fueling loads and not thinking about it but then for this tt it was like i think it was five and a half k like 15 percent which is steep and long and um we didn't even ride it we couldn't recon it we drove up there in the cars in the morning but yeah, anyway going into it i think it was probably a bit a little dehydrated but yeah it was just a brutal climb and there was there weren't any fans allowed in the middle parks it was too narrow and steep and so that was weird there was a motorbike behind as well because the cars couldn't go up there with the ds sat on the back of the motorbike with a radio and it was just yeah unique for sure yeah it looked weird it looked like just you're out for a ride because there's you know it's like a ride for a forest <laughs> yeah. on your own yeah it was and it and that was weird like you know in such a big race no fans and just you're still focused and stuff, but I don't know. It were, I would have preferred, even though they would have been Slovenians, just the atmosphere would have just... Not that that's... That, <laughs> Roglic is Slovenian, so careful. his fans is what I mean, yeah. Nothing wrong with Slovenians. <laughs> Matej Mohoric was there the other day. You know, careful what you say about Slovenians. Yeah, I think it would have added, added more to it. I'm not saying the result would have changed, but I don't know, it was a very surreal race. And then I heard on the radio like that he had had a mechanical or something and... I saw a time check, like we had a stationary guy as well for an extra time check. And I don't know what it was at that point, maybe 10 seconds. And you're thinking, oh, but it, uh, to be honest, then I kind of knew I'd lost it. Cause I was like, I could just feel my legs going. And I'd had bicarb in the morning, like drunk it, which I used to do on the track, but never really done on the road. Cause I retain fluids easily. So if I have bicarb, I'll be two, three kilos heavier the next day, just purely from fluid retention. And I'll take a day or two to sweat it out. So I'd never really take it. But then obviously, you know, stage 20, it doesn't matter if you're heavy the next day. So I had it and it's just a different feeling. 
and there was probably a mistake just to do that because well yeah it's just, it's just different you don't really have that grunt you can't you don't feel like you're just forcing it it's just more like your legs are just going to jelly and it was horrible actually even then getting into the fans the last sort of 2k just being like oh i could just feel like i'm really not going anywhere now but you have to get to the finish and he got to the finish and i just knew marco my swanny was there to, to catch me and push me up the last um after the finish obviously but like <laughs> get me to the tent or whatever then as i was getting to the tent to plusky and time and who were both top 10 as well at the time so they walk out the tent so they had waited there to watch it and I just looked at them and they were just like looked through me almost and just like got out of the way. And then I was like, oh, I've definitely lost it. And I was sat in that tent. I could just hear like Jumbo and next door. I could hear them all celebrating. And I could hear all like the Slovenian fans. And I was just like, oh, mate, like I would just rather be anywhere else in the world right now. I'd be just sat there. Yeah, you're just gutted, aren't you? You're just like, Pah. but like I said in my podcast, if I was like fifth and was getting better and then ended up second, then you can kind of, accept that but the fact that i was leading and then to just boom lose it on the last day made it even worse it's to your credit you face the tv cameras you you seem to deal with it pretty well under the circumstances yeah kind of like you know i knew i had to go and congratulate roglic and you know the team even though they did sod all but um <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously i made it and then obviously i had to do a few interviews and it was probably worse than like blithy adam blithe was doing the interview i was just oh mate like because he's a good mate i've known him for a while and then you know he was i can't remember what he said but like he just starts getting you a bit emotional i was just like oh man this is this is hard now yeah i did it got through it and then i had dope control and it took me two and a half hours to go i, I was just like this is just torture now because then we had to get a cable car down and then it was like two hours to the hotel and um so i spoke to like max and sar whatever on the phone that like kills 15 minutes or whatever and then to be there for another two hours and it was just like, Phew, it's torture. I mean, there's no good time to lose the Giro by that narrow margin. But is it better for you that you had that experience as a much more experienced, uh, mature rider than if it had happened in your mid-20s, for example? Yeah, maybe. It's just a bit crap, however old you are, to be honest. But, <laughs> um, you know, Roglic went through it, like, when was it? 2020. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just the way it goes, isn't it? I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, Out Now, is Rouleur 123, the Futurology issue. There is some amazing bike tech in Rouleur 123. We went to watch a sweet aqueous being lovingly built. We've got a story about the amazing Canyon Grail. We've got the inside line on the collaboration between BMC and Red Bull Racing. And there's a fantastic story about the Parisian AI art collective who decorated the Lapierre frames used by Group Armour FTJ in the Tour de France. We also got access to an amazing collection of futuristic time trial bikes from the past, conceived around the time in the early 1990s when TT bike design was suddenly exploding and the bikes looked more futuristic than ever before. There are also stories about the future of the sport. We've looked at the past, present and future of women's time trialling, along with a special feature about how rider scouting is changing. And of course, we've got a range of in-depth interviews with Greg Van Avermaet, Taco van der Horn and Jay Vine, all of whom have fascinating perspectives on their careers and the sport. There's also an amazing feature about the Miami Blazers Criterium team, which is essential reading for anyone interested in the future direction of the sport, and much, much more. 
Rouleau is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Rouleau 123 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rouleau.cc, hit the subscribe button, and enter the code PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. And how did the rest of the season pan out for you? Shit. <laughs> it's like... Uh, right, it's, now it's we can, weird. We can, we can stop there. We can talk about your book now if you want. <laughs> yeah, we will in a minute. I was just like... But it feels like it only went well for three weeks this year. Like the main three weeks. And then the rest was just like... Well, the build-up was decent. But after that... Oh, it was the first time I'd gone for two Grand Tours in the same year as well. And that was a massive learning experience. Not that I'm going to use it, because I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> that's, but, that's learning. You, you, you've learned that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you've got a new book out, Great Rise According to G. Explain what this book is about and why you've written it. Well, the reason we wrote it was because I was supposed to retire this year. And I was going <laughs> to do a book about my career, but I'm not retiring. So, <laughs> the publishers... Quick, quickly crank this one out. <laughs> well, no, so the publishers were like, oh, well, we, we'd really love you to do another book like Mountains. And... So me and Tom were chatting and we were like, oh, we don't want it to be like... That's Tom Fordyce. Tom author. Fordyce who writes it for me, basically. Like, I chat to him. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> Look, you've listened to me talk for like, whatever, half an hour. I, I can't write a book. <laughs> um, so we just thought what would be interesting and um, yeah, just try... It's, it's difficult. This is a fourth book now, which is mad. And like, you don't want to repeat yourself. So try to get some nice roots in there and just like what and it's I don't know it's not just the rides you know there's bits that explain the route well and there's other bits with my memories from racing there or training there and just my experiences and stuff so it's kind of a way of telling more stories about my career in a different way really yeah. and it also reminds us that you know you're you're an elite racer you've won the biggest race in the world you've been a professional cyclist for a long time now but in the essence, your life is about riding the bike, and that's what this book is about. Yeah, and still a fan, basically. Like, I still love bike racing. Like, watching the tour this year, it was hard because I wanted to be there, really. But watching it was also, I don't know, it kind of took me back, like, well, 20 years, and, like, it was a kid again watching it, so still love it, so, yeah. There's some really great rides through the book. I just want to take issue that the first line of the prologue, you, you said, you never feel worse after a bike ride. I'll just say, going. I'm not a Tour de France winner. You know, we're not all Tour de France winners. Sometimes we do feel quite physically tired after, <laughs> after a bike ride. But just explain what you mean there. Yeah, just more the mentality, really. Like, for instance, the main thing that I'm thinking about there is when you go out and it's crappy weather, it's raining and it's or whatever, and, but you still get your kit on and you go out, you do it, and you come back and yeah, you might be freezing and, and you might get hypothermia, but you recover <laughs> from it. And then, but afterwards, you're like, oh, yeah, no, that was good, you know? Like once you've warmed up, and not the hypothermia bit, but once you've warmed <laughs> up and like you've done it, you feel that sense of achievement. And like now, for instance, after this time off the bike, oh, you just start to feel so lethargic and just lack a bit of energy, really. Like, but once you start training and you get a bit of consistency and you just feel so much more rejuvenated after a bit of exercise, a bit of a sweat and top of the world. Do you have a preference between racing and riding? Do you prefer one to the other? I spoke to Lizzie Dygman yesterday and she says she definitely prefers racing to riding. What's your perspective on yeah, that? Yeah, 100%. I think I still lo lo love riding, but training is different to riding, and you train to race. And 
you train that hard and you put all that hard grafting and you know the diet and all the restrictions to go well in the race really and it's all about the racing so yeah for me it'd be the racing is the but then there's nothing worse than when it's going bad as well you don't you'd rather be anywhere else yeah and what's what do you say your favorite ride is it depends what you want to do like if it's going to be a long ride and in, in the mountains and then you know somewhere in south of france is great then if it's just like ride to the pub with your mates then you know cardiff is ideal um or then you know a coffee ride you know a nice aussie calf down in australia somewhere so i think wherever you are it's, it's always something good about it yeah and you've mentioned that your your home rides around monaco you often you, you're quite keen to promote those especially to the cyclists who live in andorra yeah definitely there's yeah. a there's there's a bit of a rivalry between oh. the monaco cycling community and that in andorra so tell me a bit more about that well you know tupac and biggie <laughs> it's a similar thing it's like it's just massive beef between Andorra and Monaco and there's just no contest in my eyes like Andorra's three hours to an airport you're up a mountain you can't ride there half the year Alex Dowsett's here somewhere isn't he <laughs> mate I'd, he'd even he'd have to admit that Monaco's the place to be yeah. sun all like 300 days a year whatever good roads like the reason I went there Obviously, you got the tax benefits, whatever, but... Like, okay, next, next question. Not, not going to beat about the bush, right? <laughs> but the main reason I honestly went there was because Froomey and Richie Port were living there. The team was setting up a little base, and it was, for me, it was like, well, I've, I've got to move out of Cardiff anyway because you, you can't train for the Tour de France in Cardiff. You could, but you're not going to win it anyway. So, you know, it's warm down there. You've got the climbs, and then chasing those two rounds, you know, just learning from them and everything. So... Um, yeah, and then the airport's half an hour away, so... Yeah, well, a victory for Monaco. As well as writing books, you've been podcasting. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I started in the tour... I don't know when it was now, maybe 19, and Luke came up with the idea. He was like, oh, why don't we just start a podcast? And I was like, yeah, if we do that, then we won't have to do interviews after stages. <laughs> Didn't work. Like I, thought, like, I thought we could just say what we wanted and then, yeah, just listen to podcasts, mate. But then, yeah, it's been, it's been great. It's just been... Um, for me as well, I was thinking, oh, yeah, possibly, you know, when you stop, it could prepare you a bit for, like, media stuff or whatever. And, yeah, then obviously the one with Tom Fordyce started as well, the, the club, the Garen Thomas Cycling Club, which runs alongside it. But it's just totally different. You know, with Tom, it's a lot more slick and professional. With Luke, it's just, <laughs> just turn up and, like, what are we talking about, mate? And, you know, the, the point of it and what I love about it is the fact it's basically unfiltered. And I can't believe mm. the stuff that you say on it. <laughs> I know, neither can the team sometimes. Like... <laughs> There's a Jean, the PR dude from the teams here today, and uh, some of the times I just message him once some new ones out. It's like, oh, what do you think of that one? It's like, yeah, it's, it's okay, like, but maybe steer clear of that a bit more. But no, like, to be fair to the team, they're, they're really good with it. They, they know what we're like, and they're happy for us to do it. And a lot of it is tongue-in-cheek, but that gets lost in translation quite a lot. But what can we do about that? Eh? Yeah. So you've been a pro for 17 years. You're getting towards the end of your career and you're in your mid-30s. Cycling has changed a lot. It's always changed a lot. It just seems like the speed of change has really been accelerating the last, even the last three or four COVID, years. Yeah, yeah. It looks harder and harder than ever to, to compete. There are kids showing up in their late teens who are able to compete with the best. So what's your perspective on that? How do, how do you keep your motivation how do you improve enough to kind of keep up to speed with the best that's what motivates me is like seeing young well kids really in it but 
but young guys coming up and being good and like I'm just like wow I'm not ready to stop yet it, it motivates me to keep improving and keep pushing and you know all this innovation like at least you know trying to s- not stay ahead of the curve because we're kind of just we're behind Jumbo now but like really keep improving and pushing and that motivates me it's just so intense now and I think for me the way I am like I think I can still be competitive if I target one thing if I try and do a year do you remember the World Cup yeah yeah With that yeah, jersey this- is Great, yeah. great jersey. Yeah, this, so the season-long one-day competition, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it was like 10 one-day races throughout the year, and they all added up to win the World Cup, basically. And uh, if I was to do something like that, there's absolutely no chance I would be able to do that. But one big hit, you know, whether it be a Grand Tour or one day, then I'm still confident I can be there with the best and, you know, while winning. And that's what I love to do, and that's what I want to keep doing, really. And what's it like racing against people like Pogacar, Van der Poel, Van Aert, who kind of change the the way the races you know unfold it's annoying <laughs> uh, it's hard but at the same time it is enjoyable and it's a massive challenge and i think especially like you know 20 years down the line you know when these guys have won you know you know probably rivaling mercs with the, the big races they won so to be racing with them now will be i'm sure i look back fondly at it but at least i try and try and Beat them every now and again. Yeah. And speaking of one big hit of targets, what's it, what's your 2024 going to look like? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, I don't know really. I, like for me, the Giro looks good. You know, it's not super steep climbs. There's two long TTs. You know, there's a there's a gravel day. You know, I've been 10th or 11th in Strada, but I've only done it twice. But yeah, so that's that's exciting. And that's after what happened this year, it'd be nice to go back and give it another go. But then. I won one the Mr. Tour again. And it finishes in Nice. Uh, the last stage is a time trial for Monaco. You go up the mountain down into Nice, which that would be class to do. You could do both. You could do both. But, well, yeah, potentially could go for the Giro and then help the younger guys in the Tour be more of a, well, be there in the, in the end for them, but also just help them. But I'm not one to talk a lot, you know, just kind of just lead by example almost. But, you know, we've got Carlos, Tom, a lot of young guys who are developing potentially, but... I'm just thinking out loud now, you, you know, but <laughs> don't quote me on this. Then there's a classics. I love to do the classics at some point, but yeah, I don't know. It's one of the, I started talking to the team. By the time we get to training camp, we'll, we'll have a better idea. Yeah, the puncher guys did want to know, actually, the guys who made the classic. The, the, they the, asked they, me as well. They, they asked the classics, you, yeah. when are we going to see you at the classics again? I have to go back before I stop because Flanders is probably my favorite race out of everything. It's just, I just remember, as I was growing up, we'd travel over to Belgium as a juniors to, to race over there and watching those guys and those races is just, yeah, it seems like the proper hard men and of the sport and great races to watch. So, yeah. Okay. Right. Thanks very much. Garrett. So you can get hold of Garrett's book at all good bookstores, probably bad bookstores as well, but focus on the good bookstores. Garrett, <laughs> I think you've been one of the iconic British racing figures of the last 17 years. You know, you've won the Tour de France, you've won Olympic gold medals, you come second in the Giro and hopefully first next year and you've won all kinds of races. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on stage. You're really entertaining. I love your podcast. Ladies Thank and gentlemen, you. please put your hands together for Garrett Thomas. <laughs> 
You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at Ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.